My first big birthday party was at McDonald's. It was my sixth birthday. Friends, family, everyone was there celebrating me. And it was in the late 80s. McDonald's, the place we all went for our vanilla ice cream swirled with some caramel on top and some nuts if you didn't have allergies. But meanwhile, something very different was happening with McDonald's in the UK. A group was campaigning against the company. Activists, organizing protests, handing out pamphlets, accusing them of low wages, unhealthy food, deforestation, animal cruelty, and much more. They called the company McGreedy, McCancer, McMurder. So what did McDonald's do to actually address this? They placed spies inside the group. At times, there were more spies in meetings than activists. And there were times where the spies were taking notes on each other about what the other spies were doing, not knowing they were spies. Gangster techniques is what I'm talking about. McDonald's, like many companies, saw their critics as threats, enemies to ignore when they could or to silence when they needed to. McDonald's eventually dragged two of the activists to court for libel. Believe it or not, this ended up becoming the longest legal case in UK history and one of the biggest PR disasters because it gave the activists a stage to express exactly what they wanted people to hear. When it all ended, it was clear McDonald's needed a better way to deal with critics. I'm Madhu Bakanola. This is TED Business. And today we hear from Bob Langer, the man who McDonald's promoted after this PR disaster. Bob had been working in their sustainability department and followed a very different philosophy about how to deal with critics. That philosophy would influence what he did over the next 25 years as he became VP of Social Responsibility and Sustainability. He recently published a book about all of this called The Battle to Do Good, Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. So over to Bob, who starts his talk with his very first crisis in the form of an old-school brown container that he carried with him onto the stage. But first, a quick break. Who remembers this infamous styrofoam container? Well, it sure changed me, it changed my company, and it started a revelatory journey about how adversaries can be your best allies. You know, back in the late 80s, this Big Mac clamshell was the symbol of a garbage crisis. People were really angry. For example, thousands of students, young students around the globe, were sending letters blaming McDonald's because we were using millions of these at that time. Now, no one, at, no one at McDonald's knew anything about environmentally friendly packaging, including me. The last 10 years, I was in charge of logistics and truck drivers. Then out of nowhere, my boss comes to me and says, hey, we want you to save this clamshell for the company and lead the effort to reduce waste within McDonald's. I looked at him and I asked him, what is polystyrene? <laughs> but it all sounded intriguing to me, because it brought me back to my roots. You see, I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, in a time of huge social upheaval in the United States. 
And I was really in tune with the protests, the sit-ins, the anti-Vietnam sentiment, and I really felt there was a need to question authority. But as I went into university, I realized that, you know, I'm not going to make a, a living doing this. And that whole movement had subsided, and my activist spirit went dormant. And I needed to make a living, so I got involved in the business world. So now these students against pollution who are sending those protest letters to McDonald's, they reminded me of myself 20 years ago. They're questioning authority. But now I'm the man. <laughs> I'm the corporate suit. I'm the one representing authority. And this new thing was emerging called corporate social responsibility, later corporate sustainability, and now I had a chance to make a difference. So the beginning of this journey started when McDonald's agreed to a partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund. They were an NGO that was founded with the principle of sue the bastards. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what are they thinking about me and my team? When I first met Richard Dennison, he's the senior scientist for EDF, I was very apprehensive. I thought he's a tree hugger, and I'm thinking he thinks all I care about is the money. So we wanted the EDF team to give us real-world solutions. So we did the logical thing. We had them flip burgers in our restaurants. So you have to imagine Richard, who, by the way, is a PhD in physics. And there he is, he's trying to dress a quarter pounder, and you're supposed to have two squirts of ketchup, one mustard, three pickles and an onion, go on to the next one, you've got to be so fast. And you know what? He couldn't get it right all day long. And he was frustrated. And I was so impressed because he was trying to understand our business. Now, the EDF team, they thought reusables were the holy grail for our business. Me and my team thought reusables, too much space, they'd make a mess, they would slow us down, but we didn't reject the idea. We went to the restaurant that they chose outside D.C., we went to the back room. The dishwasher wasn't working properly, it's spitting out dirty dishes. The kitchen area is dirty and grimy, and compared to their experience at McDonald's that's clean and organized, they could see the stark difference. We also sat in a restaurant at McDonald's all day long and watched the customers eating in. Their behavior ends up that many customers left with the food, they left with the beverage. And EDF came to their own conclusion that reusables wouldn't work for us. But they did have a lot of ideas that did work, and we never would have thought of them by ourselves without the EDF team. My favorite was switching from the white carryout bag to the brown bag. We had been using the white bag. It's virgin material, it's made from chlorine bleaching chemicals, and they said, use an unbleached bag, no chemicals. Uh, it's made from recycled content, mostly recycled shipping corrugated boxes. Ends up that the bag is stronger, the fiber is stronger, it didn't cost us more money, it was win-win. What was really cool is we changed that bright white napkin because of the recycled content, it became gray and speckled. And we made that look, you know, in tune, in vogue with customers. So I came to really enjoy the time 
working with the EDF team. We had many dinners, late-night discussions. We went to a ball game together. We became friends. And that's when I learned a life lesson, that these NGO crusaders, they're really no different than me. They care, they have passion, we're just not different. So we had a partnership that ended up producing a 42-point waste reduction action plan to reduce, reuse, recycle. We measured it during the decade of the 90s, and over 10 years, we reduced 300 million pounds of waste. Now, if you're wondering about that polystyrene clamshell, yeah, we ditched it, and luckily, I still had a job. And uh, this partnership was so successful that we went on to recycle the idea with, to work with critics, collaborate them on solutions that could work for society and for business. But could this idea of collaborating work with the most contrarian folks and on issues that are you know, not within our direct control, like animal rights? Now, animal rights, obviously, they don't want animals used for meat. McDonald's, probably the biggest purchaser of meat in the food service industry, so there's a natural conflict there. But I thought it would be best to go visit and learn from the most vociferous and vigilant critics we had at that time, which were Henry Spira, head of Animal Rights International, and Peter Singer, who wrote the book Animal Liberation, which is considered the modern treatise about animal rights. You know, I read Peter's book to prepare. I tried to get into his uh, mindset, and I have to admit it was tough. I'm not becoming a vegan. My company wasn't going that way. Uh, but I really thought we could learn a lot. And so I set up a breakfast meeting in New York City. And I remember sitting down, getting ready, and I decided, you know, I'm not going to order my favorites, which is, you know, bacon and sausage and eggs. <laughs> and I'm just going to stick to the pastries. But I have to admit, I, I was waiting for the adversarial discussion to happen. And it never did. Henry and P Peter were just gracious. They were caring. They were smart. They asked good questions. I told them about how working on animal welfare is very tough for McDonald's because our direct suppliers, they only make meat patties. The animals are three or four steps you know, removed from our influence. And they were very empathetic. And while we were so directly opposed in terms of the missions of our organizations, I felt I had learned a lot. And best of all, they gave me a terrific recommendation. And that is, they said, you should work with Dr. Temple Grandin. Now, I didn't know her at the time. But I tell you, she's the most renowned expert then and now on animal behavior. And she knows how animals move and how they should react in facilities. So I end up meeting her, and you know, she's the very best type of critic, in a sense that she just loves the animals, wants to protect them, but she also understands the reality of the meat business. And I'll always remember, I had never been to a slaughterhouse you know, in my life, and so I go with her for my first trip. I didn't know what to expect. And we find that the animal handlers have uh, electric prods in their hand and are basically zapping almost every animal in the facility. You know, we're both appalled. She's jumping up and down. You'd have to know her. She's saying, this can't be, this isn't right. We could use flags, we could use plastic bags, we could redesign the corrals for natural behavior. 
Well, I set up Temple with our suppliers to set up standards and guidelines and ways to measure her ideas of implementing animal welfare. And we did this for the next two to five years. And it all got integrated, it all got enforced. By the way, two of McDonald's suppliers lost business because they didn't meet our standards. And best of all, all these standards ended up scaling to the entire industry. Now, what about issues that were blamed for elsewhere, like deforestation? You know, on that issue, I always thought policymakers and government, that's their role. Never thought it would end up like in my lap. But I remember in early April 2006, I op opened up my BlackBerry, and I'm reading about Greenpeace campaigners showing up in the UK by the dozens, dressed as chickens, having breakfast at McDonald's, and chaining themselves to the chairs and tables. So they got a lot of attention, including mine. And I was wondering if their report that they had just released, it was called Eating Up the Amazon. And by the way, soy is a key ingredient for chicken feed, and that's the connection to McDonald's. So I called my trusted friends at the World Wildlife Fund, I called Conservation International, and I soon, soon learned that the Greenpeace report was accurate. So I gathered internal support, and I always remember, next day after that campaign, I called them up and I said, we agree with you. And I said, how about working together? So three days later, Miraculously, four people from McDonald's, four people from Greenpeace were meeting in the airport. And uh, I have to say the first hour was shaky. There wasn't a whole lot of trust in the room. But it seemed like everything came together because each of us wanted to save the Amazon. And during our discussions, you couldn't really tell, I don't think, who was from Greenpeace and who was from McDonald's. So, one of the best things we did is we traveled with them for nine days on a trip through the Amazon, on the Greenpeace airplane, on the Greenpeace you know, boat. And uh, I'll always remember, imagine traveling hundreds of miles west of Manaus, the capital city of the Amazon, and it's so pristine beauty. It's, there's no man-made structures, there's no roads, not one wire, not one house. You would travel east of Manaus and you would see the blatant reinforced destruction. So this very unlikely collaboration produced outstanding results. By working together, we recruited over a dozen other retailers and suppliers for the same cause. And by the way, within three months, a moratorium on these clear-cutting practices were announced by the industry. And Greenpeace themselves declared it as a spectacular drop and deforestation, and it's been in effect ever since. Now, you think these types of collaborations that I've described would be commonplace today, but they're not. You know, when organizations are battered, the common response is to deny and push back, put out some sort of lame statement, and no progress is made at all. I say the alternative is really powerful. I mean, it's not going to fix every problem, and there's more to do for sure, but this idea of working with critics and trying to do more good for society that actually is good for business, believe me, it's possible. But it starts with the idea that you need to assume the best intentions of your critics, just like you have the best intentions. And then secondly, 
You need to look past a lot of these tactics. I admit, I did not like a lot of the tactics used on my company, but instead, focus on what the truth is. What's the right thing to do? What's the science? What's the facts? And lastly, you know, I would say, give the critics the keys. Show them the back room. Bring them there. Don't hide the details. Because if you want allies and support, you need to be open and transparent. Now, whether you're a corporate suit, whether you're a tree hugger, I say the next time that you're criticized, reach out, listen, learn. You'll become better. Your organization will become better, and you might make some good friends along the way. Thank you. These days, it's really easy to take Bob's call to action for granted. The idea of corporate social responsibility was not the norm in the 90s during McLeibel. Instead, the wisdom of those days is best summarized by a quote from economist Milton Friedman, who said, There's one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits. And 30 years later, we don't really think like that. The new norm has really become that business has a responsibility to do good and be profitable. And Bob gives us a way to do that more effectively. I wanted to pick apart this approach with Corey Hagem, Ted's business curator. Hey, Madube. Hi. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Hanging in the closet with you. A former business person and business writer, Corey focuses on Ted's business ideas and chose Bob to give a talk. And I had so many questions for Corey, because while working with your toughest critic might sound like a good idea, what if your toughest critic is a bigot or really doesn't have your best interest at heart? I actually don't think Bob's idea applies to every situation or every person equally, but there are nuggets we can all take from it. And the first thing I noticed is how he engaged with his potential adversaries. He tapped into his curiosity. He wanted to learn more. And when we're in situations that have the potential for conflict, research shows that this learning mindset is key. The idea that he wanted to learn more, the curiosity, was huge. And such a critical part of the experience and such a reminder that when we're in these situations with potential adversaries, can we be curious? And rather than view them as adversaries, view it as a moment to go deeper inside and be curious. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. At the heart of everything he suggests um, is curiosity. It's just, you know, who is this person on the other side of this issue? What do they want? What do they believe? How can I understand them better? And how can I help them understand my point of view better? Right, right. And I mean, I also think that one of the benefits of curiosity is that it's a natural way to prevent your defense mechanisms from kind of taking over when they flaring up and flaring up. And, you know, as a stress researcher, that defense mechanism is huge. Ultimately, we need it. We need to see a threat and experience a threat and then have our bodies react because we are designed to be able to run away from a threat or to attack a threat or whatever. And so what's critical is that when that defense mechanism goes up, to be able to step back and notice that it's gone up 
and to then just kind of be present again. And what I think curiosity does is it makes you step back and say, wait, huh, that bothered me. But let me go back to being curious. Let me be curious. And then offline, you can be like, wait, why did that allow for my the hairs to spike up on my the back of my neck in a particular way that I wasn't anticipating? Right. As you and I have talked kind of outside this closet, um, <laughs> being able to do this work, assuming someone's best intention, being curious in response to sort of an attack, you need to be in a place where you feel comfortable where you feel empowered and you have the energy to do this work. Yep. Yep. And recognizing also that when you're beaten up and feeling broken down, that's when your emotion regulation capacities are lower. So it's really hard to be like, wait, let me be curious again, when you really are wanting to have a rebuttal that's obnoxious if they said something that was frustrating to you or whatever. Right. And so when we look at Bob's talk, right, like Bob works at McDonald's. He's from an established company. He may be being attacked on certain issues, but it's not personal. He's not in danger. I think there's something for everyone to learn from Bob's talk. But I do think the big message is to the people in power. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was listening the other morning to Dan Harris, the host of the 10% Happier podcast, and he was talking to Lori Santos, mm-hmm. a researcher from Yale. And she said a couple of things that really struck me and I felt related to this conversation. One was, you know, if someone doesn't endorse your humanity, mm. There's sort of nothing you can do. You shouldn't have to try to connect with them, right? right? Like there has to be this baseline endorsement of, you know, I value you, you value me. And then the second thing she talked about was the divide that has happened um, around the world over content in that the content you consume and the content I consume could be completely different. It's not like we're both arguing with you know, the facts from an article in the New York Times. Like, Mm -hmm. I have my sources, you have your sources. Sometimes it's based on experience. Sometimes it's based on a book we read or something else. But how do we create something that we can understand through the same lens? And one of the powerful things I think that Bob did that we can all learn from is he created this sort of common set of experiences between himself and the people that he was working with. So he brought in the EDF folks to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. He went to the slaughterhouse um, with Temple Grandin. He went to the Amazon. And so both sides of this conversation had this shared experience and shared set of facts. And I feel like that is a way to either find out if someone else has best intentions because they're willing to go there with you or kind of create a scenario in which you can both sort of be on the same page. Right, right. One of the things that I thought was very powerful also was when he gave them the keys. Right. (laughs) The, the, The idea of, hey, here's what we're struggling with. Can you help? And understanding that other people's perspective can really help solve some of the problems that you're facing. And that's not rocket science. I think we know that. But how can we view our adversaries as people who are in the struggle with us? Right. 
but they also need to signal that they're really in the struggle. And I think, again, his actions signaled that he was in the struggle, too. Right. Which is powerful. And maybe that's something we need to do more of as individuals is how can I signal that I do have good intentions? Or, you know, the other thing that he said that was that really stuck out for me is you have to assume they care as much as you care. They care about right. what they're doing as much as you care about what you're doing. Right. Um, right. And that's another way of saying best intentions, but it it's more to the point. It's more real. Yeah. It also reminded me that this idea of we all come from different places and spaces. And so the foundations upon which we base our information and knowledge are really different. That was really powerful when you just said that to me. And I think it's incumbent on people with power to recognize when they are missing or lacking information and when that place of privilege is one that prevents them from seeing. And what I love is that Bob is in a position of power and he recognizes it. And so he says, let me be curious and let me see what I'm missing. Right. That's a huge challenge. And I think that what we can hopefully learn from Bob is like, what is the experience or the common set of facts or information that we can provide that will create that common ground? And I don't mean common ground in the sense of, you know, we can agree on this thing, but we can agree to sort of experience each other's stories. That's one of the ways we empathize is hearing a personal account, hearing a personal story. And, you know, it's often said that examples are more persuasive than, like, statistics. So sometimes people might want to just throw the numbers out there, but can you also show people and have them experience it, which is what we saw happened with Bob. Right. There's there's sort of, like, data, which sometimes means very little to people, and then there's story that can mean more. But then experience, what Bob did, is probably the most powerful. So I think that's a place for us to focus. Mm -hmm. If we do have a cause or, you know, a change we're trying to create, how do we really bring people into that experience so that content divide isn't there? Like foundation. Let's all start with the same foundation. We got to get in the same room. Of course, we can't do that right now because of COVID. But it's like, how do we get around that same, in that same room, around that same table? I think that's right. That's it for today. Our producer is Kim Naderfane-Peterza. Dan DeZula is our mixer. And special thanks to Michelle Quint, Angela Chang, Anna Phelan, and Colin Helms. I'm Madupa Akinola. Talk to you next week.